Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read great business books and explore how they can help us navigate our careers. Read along with us so you can become a stronger leader within your company or a more adept entrepreneur. This month, we read King of Capital, The Remarkable Rise, Fall, and Rise Again of Steve Schwartzman and Blackstone by David Carey and John Morris. King of Capital is more than just a book about Blackstone. It's a history of private equity. Carey and Morris explain the sometimes esoteric world of this segment of high finance. They recounted cycles of booms and busts from the 1980s through the 2010s and explain how Blackstone navigated the sometimes tumultuous waters to ultimately become one of the most influential alternative investment management companies in the world. But before we get into the book, let's introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm David Short. I'm a product manager. Hi, I'm Kevin Hudak, Chief Research Officer at a real estate research and advisory services firm. And I'm David Kopeck, an assistant professor of computer science. Let's start with the basics. What is Blackstone? Blackstone is an alternative assets investment management company known primarily for private equity. In addition to PE, they are also a major real estate investor, investment bank, and they operate a variety of other funds. They have a total of $881 billion under management and a market cap of $150 billion. And the two founders of Blackstone are Steve Schwartzman and Peter Peterson. Let's learn a little bit about Steve Schwartzman. Yeah, Steve Schwartzman is the chairman and CEO of Blackstone to this day. He was born in 1947 to Arlene and Joseph, a linens and housewares store owner where Stephen worked while growing up. He graduated from Yale in 1969, where he was the first Jewish member of Skull and Bones, and then Harvard Business School in 1972 after a brief stint in the Army Reserves. Schwartzman first worked in financial services at DLJ, Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jinrette before joining Lehman Brothers, where he had a a stratospheric career, making MD at 31 and becoming the global head of M&A before leaving to found Blackstone. He became notorious for his lavish parties, including a $3 million birthday party featuring Rod Stewart and Martin Short shortly before the company was seeking to go public, which ended up inspiring a lot of congressional attention on the PE industry and the immense wealth being concentrated in the hands of these masters of the universe. And the other founder has quite a different persona. Who's Peter Peterson? So I'm happy to introduce Peter Peterson in part because he was a bit more political in the D.C. metro area where I am right now. Uh, But essentially, Peter Peterson was uh, from Nebraska originally, but uh, was the chairman and CEO of Bell & Howell from 1963 to 1971. He was then here in D.C., like I mentioned, as the U.S. Secretary of Commerce from 72 to 73 under Richard Nixon. Uh, And it was an interesting stay that he had there, despite being a more political person and the diplomat of the group. When you look at him and Schwartzman, he actually didn't have a lot of luck in the Nixon White House eventually and ended up moving to Lehman Brothers, actually, after his stint in the White House. So from 1973 to 1984, he was chairman of Lehman Brothers, where he was somewhat described as being a bit of a fish out of the water in finance world, you know, having come from this more policy and public service background. Uh, But that also brought him a different perspective that I think served him well. And so by 1985, he founded Blackstone alongside Schwartzman, as we've discussed. And really, it seems like Peterson was the one who brought the early pomp and momentum to Blackstone in its early years. Uh, Being a bit older, by about 20 years or so than Schwartzman, having that political establishment, having connections to some of the movers and shakers there as well. You know, Morris and Carey, you know, the book's authors, describe him as a bit more remote cerebral, preoccupied was the word that he used. So despite being political, he often didn't really pick up on political headwinds or tailwinds. 
right? He lost that clout in the Nixon White House. And even at Lehman Brothers, there was a coup, a coup that was being basically uncovered behind his back, and he didn't notice, despite having more of those political instincts. I'd also say that he was a bit more hands-off in the day-to-day decision-making uh, when he was at uh, Blackstone. He still blessed the deals, looked at the deals, but and, you know he was a sounding board for Schwartzman as well. But he was always a bit more in the background of the book and in the background of Blackstone as Schwartzman really took over the day-to-day. I would note that he was also a founder and uh, principal founder of the Peter G. Peterson Foundation, which is dedicated to promoting fiscal austerity. And unfortunately, he did pass away in 2018, but I'm sure he's fondly remembered by his family and colleagues at Blackstone. Yeah, to me, Schwartzman kind of felt like a hustler a little bit, and Peterson always felt like a statesman. I love that idea, Dave, the elder statesman. Yep. Absolutely. Let's get into something else that's pretty basic. What is private equity? Because I don't think all of our listeners are familiar with the world of finance. Yeah. So private equity really just means equity that is not part of a publicly traded firm. So a company that has you know, gone through either an initial public offering or, or taken other steps to become you know, a publicly traded firm, which requires a lot of disclosure. So private equity really just means it's not open to the public. And it means that you know, typically to make private equity investments, you need to be considered an accredited investor, which has you know, particular either credentials that you can earn or you know, financial stability and, and income that you can demonstrate in order to be considered eligible to invest in private equity. When we think about private equity, there are private equity funds, which you know, Blackstone is, is arguably the largest, one of the largest uh, firms in that space. But there's also you know, venture capital, angel investors. Those are all different kinds of investors that are making private equity investments. And private equity firms often acquire companies using what's called a leveraged buyout. How does a leveraged buyout work? Exactly. I think that's one of the, the key differentiators between some of those other players I was talking about. In an LBO, a firm will issue debt backed by the company that they're acquiring and use that to purchase the company. So if I wanted to buy you know, David Kopech's business, instead of me borrowing money on my own you know, credibility, I would instead be borrowing money based off of the new company that I'm going to acquire with it. And then I am able to buy that company without having to put in nearly as much equity. And so uh, the private equity industry, when it first started in the 80s, was able to do very low you know, dollar commitments up front in order to buy very large businesses. And over time, the banks and other institutions did like sour on this a little bit and did require private equity to put in more and more equity up front. But at the beginning, it was sometimes you know 10% or less of the value of the company was coming from that equity investment. And the vast majority of the purchasing price they were paying was from typically junk bonds, and there were other sort of debt financing instruments that they used in order to do the, to, to gain that leverage in order to complete the buyout. Okay. Thanks for that explanation. And keeping that in mind, that whole practice has actually historically been somewhat controversial, as well as the whole industry. Private equity has been somewhat controversial. Why is that? Why is it controversial? Yeah, I'm happy to feel that, Dave. You know, whether it's movies like Pretty Woman, uh, where Richard Gere plays a corporate raider, or even going back to the movie Sabrina with Humphrey Bogart and later Harrison Ford. You know, when you think about private equity in the public imagination, it's always been that big money monster buying up small companies with very little skin in the game, as Dave mentioned, and really making money no matter what happens to the company, right? And a lot of times, some of these acquisitions are also unwelcome or hostile, like we had mentioned earlier, particularly in the early days of private equity. You know, Toys R Us is a great example where, you know, on its acquisition, 
there's promises, protocols around keeping you know, a beloved American brand solvent and open, and then seven years later, it's gone. So it's easy to see how the industry as a whole has taken on some reputational baggage with stories like that. But I'd also say, you know, at the same time, in a lot of situations that private equity has been involved, they do give the companies they acquire access to cash, markets, resources, even expertise that they do in fact need if they're going to transform or meet an immense challenge. It's just that the big thing you hear about are the companies that haven't risen to those challenges more than the kind of good stories. You know, it seems like from the book that Blackstone really wanted to be something different than the gamblers, hustlers, raiders, the activist investors, right, that are profiled in the book. And I think some of that was that, you know, combination of Peterson and Schwartzman that you mentioned before, right? And some of these private equity groups, and I would imagine Blackstone wants this too, they want to be seen as enabling and empowering management. The book mentions that quite a bit. Uh, We didn't really see a lot of it, though. It's almost like they kept teasing us with, you know, stories of where PE empowers management. We didn't see that in a lot of cases. I would have liked to have seen that more. Yeah, actually, one of the things I really learned from this book was that distinction between corporate raiders and private equity that I hadn't really previously understood. At the beginning, that was their real differentiator was, hey, there are these corporate raiders, they're going to come in and they're going to, you know, strip the business for parts. We are like cooperative with management. We're not going to fire the current CEO. We're going to come in and give that CEO the power to uh, not be beholden to the public equities markets, not being focused on you know each quarter's returns, but instead being able to think long term about the company. And you know, as we see in a lot of the deals over time, the the degree to which these private equity players were always you know on the side of management changed. And eventually, you know, you know, money talks, and and they chose to you know do uh, you know aggressive tactics and things that uh, you know at the beginning of their careers they were claiming was completely different from from what their business was. So these leverage buyouts often happen with very little upfront equity relative to the amount of debt. How is that debt raised? You mentioned earlier junk bonds, David. Um, I'm wondering if either of you can get more into where this debt comes from. Sure. And I'm happy to talk through some of that. We talked about, Dave, the idea that these firms are loading up their acquired businesses with debt. That gets to my skin in the game comment earlier. And, you know, as Short explained, the purchase of a given company is typically done with funds acquired through the use of the target company as collateral, right? Collateralizing the target company. You know, and while these private equity groups and companies are raising capital from insurance companies, pension funds, endowments, other institutions, they still have to raise that money in the form of debt. So Morris and Carey describe the early days of these, the the high yield debt or quote unquote junk bonds that were actually innovated by Michael Milken. You know, and I also note that it's really relationships with banks, relationships with a lot of these funds are super important, and they can often make or break these private equity groups. Uh, you know, Morris and Carey describe Blackstone's sort of early symbiotic relationship with Chemical Bank, right? And a young upstart commercial lending chief named James Lee. So Chemical Bank, which would then go on to become the much better known giant J.P. Morgan Chase, was actually not big enough at the time to finance some of these larger buyouts. So Chemical Bank and James Lee would give Blackstone some of that debt firepower to tackle some of the biggest booms, some of the biggest busts as well. Uh, and it's funny, I remember my dad having a Chemical Bank credit card back in the day when uh, we were in the 80s in New York. And so that was definitely a blast from the past. So the book is seemingly about Blackstone and Steve Schwartzman, but really it goes into the entire private equity industry. But let's focus in a bit just on Blackstone. 
How did Peterson and Schwartzman start Blackstone? Yeah, so Blackstone was founded by Steve Schwartzman and Peter Peterson in 1985. As we'd already mentioned, they had worked together at Lehman Brothers, where Peterson was CEO and chairman and Schwartzman was the head of M&A. The name of the company itself is a cryptogram of the founder's name. So Schwartz is German for black and Peter comes from the Greek word for stone, Petros, uh, Blackstone, uh, you know, Schwartz, Peter. <laughs> While the founders always intended to raise an LBO fund, they initially worked as a boutique M&A advisor because neither of them had actually done a leveraged buyout uh, at Lehman. They'd sort of been pushing for the firm to do it. They'd gotten pushback from the other partners, and it was why they'd ultimately chosen to leave. They were forced to actually give a significant amount of their profits back to Lehman, particularly if it was related to any uh, clients that they'd had as Lehman partners. And that was something that they agreed to do essentially to get out of their obligations to the firm. In 1987, two years after the founding, they were able to close their first LBO fund, and they got significant commitments from Prudential, uh, Japanese uh, Nikkei Securities, and the GM Pension Fund. But that was when they were able to actually step into the, the private equity space with that leveraged buyout fund. I'm going to, again, ask for a little bit of clarity for our listeners who are not familiar with, with finance. Can you please tell us more about what M&A is, mergers and acquisitions? Yeah. So mergers and acquisitions is a part of investment banking where investment bankers are giving advisory to companies that are seeking to you know, merge with another business or acquire another business. And so you know, a large public company is looking to acquire another large public company or perhaps a, a, you know, a small private company. They will go to an M&A advisor and that person will you know, structure the deal, uh, help come to the terms, uh, potentially finance part of it, and uh, yeah, essentially just help bring that deal to a close. Throughout this book, we learn a lot about the history of private equity and some of the good times and bad times. Can you tell us a bit about some of the notable booms and busts for, for private equity as the industry progressed over the past few decades? Yeah, when you look at the founding of Blackstone in 1985, you know, that was really one of the, you know, the, the, one of the golden eras of, of private equity in its, in its early founding days. Uh, right in 1986, that was clearly a boom year and a big inflection point for leveraged buyouts and private equity, with the KKR acquisition of RJR Nabisco in 1988 being one of the, the large hallmark banner transactions of the time. I'd then say that you know, 1990 through 1992, the book describes as a bit of a bust, right? That RJR Nabisco deal, which was one of the biggest at that point, was showing a lot of strain. It was a company in crisis a bit. Right. And a big investment bank named Drexel Burnham Lambert collapsed as well. And along with it, that early junk bond, high yield debt market that we had talked about. Uh, and then about 1992, that was a bit of a resurgence for the industry. You know, there were some big notable deals that happened, including Dwayne Reed, J. Crew, Domino's, even Regal Entertainment, the movie theaters. I'd then say that that 92 to 2000 uh, time was really, you know, obviously the start of the internet era, the tech boom. You know, the authors mention how it was a big deal when Microsoft kind of supplanted GE and GM as one of the world's largest companies. And as a result, you really saw a lot of private equity and venture capital organizations supporting the rise of many of those tech titans. But then, of course, in early 2000 to 2003, we had the burst of the internet bubble, right? And that caused a private equity crash as well. You know, 2003 to 2007, as the book describes, was a bit more of that pre-recession, sort of the glory days of private equity. 
which then went into that big bust year in 2008, right? Annual private equity volume, I remember, went from about $375 billion to $189 billion. So a really big slip there. Uh, but you know, as things have recovered since 2008, you know, private equity activity has obviously been rising. You know, COVID-19 likely slowed that down for a bit, affected world markets overall. But you know, some would say that we're entering another you know, sort of golden era for private equity as well. Uh, but you know, I'm happy to share that history. And what I would say that the book really did well is, albeit a bit redundant, it really did go through that timeline. So as part of the, the preamble or the promise of that book, it fulfilled it in giving people even laymen like myself, uh, myself, a good background and a timeline of the history of private equity. Great. Thanks for that, Kevin. There's a lot of interesting vignettes in the book. Some of them are about particular companies that they took private. Some of them are just interesting things that happened in the industry. Can you tell us what your favorite vignettes were from the book? Yeah. So, you know, one of the vignettes that I already mentioned, I, I really liked this Jimmy Lee or James Lee at Chemical Bank. You know, I love how uh, essentially you know, the folks at Blackstone really had him on speed dial, right? Anytime they needed some creative and powerful deal terms, or they needed to uh, really work with a complex transaction, you know, they'd go right to him. And I sort of imagined Peterson and Schwartzman sitting there and saying like, get Jimmy, Jimmy Lee on the phone, on the line right now. Uh, that's what it felt like. In terms of vignettes from some of the companies that they acquired, you know, I always thought the Six Flags example is really interesting. It was one of their you know, largest ever investments at the time in the early 90s at about $1.3 And I believe that did go on to be a, you know, a very good long-term relationship and a partnership uh, for Blackstone. Uh, and I would say that I, that's one of my favorite vignettes in the book, as long as they weren't responsible for that creepy old man character that did start showing up in Six Flags ads back in the 90s. One of the failed buyouts in the book is about Freescale Semiconductor, which is now actually part of NXP. It's interesting too in the book because there's one buyout that's potentially going to happen of NXP, a different one for Freescale. Ultimately, after the book was written, the two companies ended up combined. But Freescale was a disaster for Blackstone. They purchased Freescale and then they claimed that the failure was due to the cyclical nature of the semiconductor business. But I think what the book was missing and I think what the people at Blackstone were missing were some real like long-term technological insight into where Freescale was positioned in the microprocessor industry compared to some of its competitors and how that would play out as cell phones really became the dominant computing platform. And I think for me, what it spoke to is how a buyout firm, if it doesn't have deep expertise and knowledge in a particular industry, might be getting in over its head. Um, and you really need to specialize and have this kind of deep technological understanding when you get into semiconductors, which I'm not sure it's clear from the book that they really had. It seemed like they were more very opportunistic about trying to take NXP or Freescale, rather than thinking about, well, how are these companies kind of well positioned for the next evolution of computing? And um, that's something the book could have gotten more into. But of course, there's so many vignettes the book covers that, you know, they, they didn't necessarily have the pages for that. Well, I touch on this in every episode, but I always talk through the importance of talent, right? And it seems like, to your point, uh, Dave Kopeck on the subject matter expertise, they had a number of sages as partners at Blackstone, and it was interesting how the departure of one or three of them, and at one point in the 90s, Blackstone really took on the reputation as a high turnover outfit, essentially. Uh, and it was interesting the lengths that Schwartzman and you know, Peterson would go to keep some of that top talent, the sages who really understand the industries and can make the deal. You know, In some cases, they would say, well, we embrace that idea. We want to set you up with an affiliate, spin off an affiliate like BlackRock, uh, like Blackstone Real Estate, which later became BlackRock. 
but they fund that, you know, they fund that early investment in that affiliate. Some of them went on to have great success. Others actually failed. But I think it's important that to maintain that subject matter expertise, they were willing to go that far to keep their people. Because obviously, Dave, like you were mentioning with Freescale, when you don't have that SME, it can cause catastrophes. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up BlackRock. Uh, They didn't go into it in too much detail in the book, but they ultimately sold BlackRock for, I think it's like $250 million to PNC, who ended up making like $2.5 billion on it over the subsequent a uh, few years. And so Schwartzman listed it as like one of his great like boondoggles. It was like it was it was really a, a culture clash. Larry Fink really felt like, you know, he deserved all the credit for the success of the business, which which he did. Um, and he and Schwartzman were just like sort of at loggerheads a lot. And so they they ultimately, you know, sold out the Blackstone ownership. And uh, it was it was not a while they made a lot of money. It was not uh, the, the best decision. I also like that you brought up this idea of sages because not all the sages were always so worthy of the title. I think about specifically David Stockman, who was a former Reagan administration budget czar who had this kind of very conservative outlook on just about everything and was like a big naysayer within the firm on a lot of deals. And it seemed even though he was there for, I think, more than a decade, it seemed like he was wrong as much as he was right. Maybe he was even wrong more than he was right on the deals. And this isn't like venture capital where you're doing like, you know, 100 bets and you only need to get one of them right to really be successful. This is like where every deal really, really matters to the bottom line. And so to have somebody who might be like super right sometimes, but also super wrong a lot, doesn't seem to really work that well for private equity. And I, I don't know, it seems like Stockman, maybe not just if you don't just take the deals that he had, but also how he might have influenced some of the other deals that he wasn't involved in. He might have actually been a net negative on the firm. It's almost written between the lines. So it's interesting how you really need somebody who's a sage all the time, not somebody who's like kind of right a lot of the time. Yeah. And I thought that was really well handled in the book, too. Uh, I wish they had expanded that section where they went into Stockman. And it was almost like he was looking to brand his investment uh, advice and his investment leadership. When you think about it, he went with this uh, kind of this. It ended up being called Heartland Investing, I believe, but he was really focused on American Rust Belt style companies almost. And in the end, it ended up being a bad bet. But I thought it was interesting how he was almost branding his leadership and his direction uh, with this sort of Rust Belt Americana focus. And I guess, you know, you start having some cognitive pitfalls when you, you know, look to, um, you know, have a, a story or a narrative to some of your investments. The other thing I wanted to mention too, you know, Kopech, you had mentioned, the difference between the venture capital planting seeds versus the private equity industry, and I really enjoyed one of the uh, one of the comparisons they made was you know really saying private equity is more like football on the field. It's a game of inches, and you are constantly trying to push the ball forward, and it requires really intelligent, sharp decision making every single play. I thought that really really resonated with me. Whereas venture capital was sort of just throwing the ball as far as you can and seeing if someone's going to catch it, and you're throwing it multiple times. That's interesting. Um, Another vignette I really enjoyed was Blackstone's acquisition of Equity Office Properties, EOP, uh, Sam Zell's real estate fund. And they ended up completing the acquisition in 2007, basically just before the uh, housing crisis hit and the, the real estate market collapsed. And so it's kind of this like notorious, uh, you know, top of the market. Sam Zell's a genius. He managed to, you know, get out for I, I forget what the numbers were, but you know, tens of billions of dollars uh, just before the the market was going to fall out from under them. 
and and so that was kind of like the the way I had heard about that in the past. But as you learn more about the investment, Blackstone had already sold the vast majority, or maybe not the vast majority, but enough of the properties that they could basically guarantee their success in the investment, regardless of how you know badly the the real estate market did over the next you know few years. So even though they they bought the top, they also simultaneously sold a lot of the key properties and were able to pay down a significant amount of the debt that they'd had to take out and uh, pay themselves a dividend such that they did end up, I think, doubling or tripling their money. You know, it wasn't one of their most successful investments. They certainly like looked bad in the press as relates to it. But even though it seems like it was a really dumb deal, they had structured it in such a way that it was kind of guaranteed to win. Definitely a lot of interesting individual deals in the book. Unfortunately, the book doesn't ever get into a huge amount of depth on any one deal because it just has so much to cover. But thinking about Steve Schwartzman and Blackstone, what do you think it is that made them so successful over decades in this industry? Yeah, and I'll start on this one. When you think about, and I'm sure you guys have some ideas around this as well, but you know, they mention cost synergies in the book and how cost synergies are important to the success of a deal. But what I also thought of were what I would call people synergies, right? And those being super important to success. You know, it really seems like the combination of Schwartzman and Peterson was very powerful. You know, you have the pragmatic executioner and Schwartzman and the savvy, you know, people person, diplomat, international relations expert as well in Peterson. You know, and Blackstone, I feel like, seemed to have always made, you know, the right relationships, the right partnerships at the right time. You know, think about Jimmy Lee and Chemical Bank and what I had told you as well. You know, I think Schwartzman always had a very narrow focus on the preservation of capital, right? He would get very personal when it came to the money, as in if I gave you this seed money for, you know, the, an affiliate of Blackstone that we're spinning off with you in charge, and you lost me money, it was a very personal thing. And I think that likely obviously probably gained some scorn and difficulty at the organization, but it also probably gained him a lot of respect. People did not want to lose the firm's money. It was his money. And he really kept track of it. He was focused on the preservation of capital. And as I mentioned before, just the fact that they spun off a number of those funds and businesses, you know, like Blackstone Real Estate, which was uh, became BlackRock, you know, when they heard a good idea, it sounded like Schwartzman and Blackstone and Peterson, you know, they really backed up their talent with startup funds, support, that subject matter expertise. It seems like when Blackstone heard a good idea, they really committed themselves to it. Obviously, there's hits and misses, but I think they always did a good job of that. And I think it was you know, evident from the book that it you know, helped make them so successful. Throughout the history recounted in the book, Blackstone is structured as a partnership. What does that mean for practical purposes? Yeah, for that, I know that when you look at 2019, you know, their IPO was originally in 2007, but in 2019, they went from, uh, they went into more of a typical C-Corp structure. You know, I think there's some tax impacts from recent legislation in 2017 that drove some of that transition. But either way, you know, in the old partnership structure, the partners would directly bring home a percentage of those profits from their funds, from their management fees, et cetera, and they were taxed as individuals, right? But as we mentioned in the top of our podcast, Really, if you were a non-institutional investor, if you were not that accredited investor, you would not be able to work with Blackstone on some of these uh, you know, funds and, and structures. Now, and as I've been seeing news coverage uh, with Schwartzman, what he's essentially saying is more practically in this new structure, 
non-institutional investors, a bigger pool of domestic and international investors as well, can now invest with Blackstone essentially and work with the company for financial growth, right? And this is exactly what Schwartzman brought up. It opens that pool of potential investors, that pool of potential growth. And a lot of the other private equity organizations are doing this as well, like Apollo uh, and others as well. One of the unique things about the Blackstone partnership was the way they structured the deals. So the partners who executed on a deal did have direct ownership, even if they chose to leave Blackstone. So it was kind of a weird dynamic that whatever deal you had put your you know, imprimatur on that you had actually sort of led, even if you left Blackstone the next year, you still owned that piece of the deal. And it actually created a lot of problems when they were trying to take Blackstone public of, of how do you go about valuing those things? How do you like pay out the partners so that the, that equity can then be put into this you know public fund? And they had to go through a number of sort of different permutations of, of what the IPO structure was going to be as the uh, Congress and, and the SEC started to ask some questions about the, the structure that they tried to propose. So it was, it was an interesting dynamic of the specific decisions they'd made about the way Blackstone worked, which was very good for the partners in a lot of ways, but not necessarily great for the, for the firm that, again, those individual partners did have their own ownership of each of the, the investments. Schwartzman and Peterson became fabulously wealthy doing Blackstone. Um, do you think if it hadn't been structured in that way that their compensation would have been different? I mean, I think equity is the key to, you know, incredible financial success for for pretty much everyone in history. Like it's very hard to become fabulously wealthy without, you know, owning equity in something that ultimately becomes very valuable. I think the the structure of the partnerships allowed Schwartzman to maintain an incredible level of control that in any other structure, he probably wouldn't have been able to. So I would say that it probably was key to to his uh, personal success. And Peterson got a a lot along the way, although he was diluted over time and, you know, was obviously, you know, became a billionaire, but just not as many times over as uh, as Schwartzman. Yeah. And I'm also wondering, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I remember reading that Blackstone actually had a pretty novel uh, bonus structure for the time, right? Where your bonus back in the 80s was based on your actual performance uh, and not just based on your existing compensation. And so I think from the perspective of, you know, Dave Kopech mentioned this, you know, extravagant wealth, it also seemed like at Blackstone that they were sharing the wealth as well in different and dynamic ways, including that novel bonus structure. Okay. Were there any elements of the book that you found unconvincing, inconsistent, or off-putting? I would say not things that I you know, found uh, unconvincing or inconsistent or off-putting, but just some general reaction along those lines. We've talked about this earlier in the podcast, but when you look at the book in seeking to provide that history, that timeline from 1980 all the way to 2009, 2011, it really is a mile wide, but an inch thin or an inch deep. And I really would have preferred a bit more drill down into some of these uh, takeover and buyout stories, and what ultimately happened to leadership at these firms, their uh, their employees. We heard a lot about pink slips every now and then, but we really did, never had any firm numbers around what success looked like and how it actually empowered leadership and management and enabled employees to actually reach that American dream. So that's a bit more of a soft factor. You know, in the past, for some of these books that we've read, I always talk about that cinematic nature that I really like. And there were episodes in this book where I thought that it was good, others where I thought it was a bit cheap. So for example, 
I loved when uh, they were explaining difference between the private equity executives and venture capital executives, the venture capitalists being in khakis and a polo shirt, driving their own cars. You know, I, I sort of liked that imagery and that explanation. But then when they talked about Leon Black from Apollo being a, quote, towering man with the intimidating bulk of a linebacker, or even talking through the Hermes ties and getting to what Kopech mentioned as that, you know, the, the world of extravagant wealth, some of that just went a little bit over the top and was off-putting to me. But the, the broader criticism I would have is just on that, you know, mile wide, but an inch deep. Uh, I would have liked to have seen some more. That was a bit off-putting. Yeah, I, I really agree. I, I enjoyed this and I learned an incredible amount from it, but it wasn't the book I was expecting it to be. Like, honestly, I just think it was poorly named. I think it's not really very focused on Blackstone. It certainly tells more about Blackstone than any other firm, but it's much more just a, a history of private equity, except for KKR's acquisition of Nabisco, which I think because there was already a famous book about that, they kind of just decided to to gloss over, and they mention it a little bit, but they don't go too too deep into um, barbarians at the gate story. So I enjoyed it. I learned an incredible amount about it. But it, I think if it had just been called like private equity a history, I probably wouldn't have read it though. And that is like more uh, accurate description of of what it really is. And and to uh, Kevin's point, very much a, a mild wide and an inch deep. They do go into a little bit more detail about some of the stories, but but towards the end, they literally just have these like bold, here's the name of a company, here's like five paragraphs about what happened, next company, next company, like just like every deal that was over some threshold, they uh, just kind of give you a little taste of what happened. But yeah, I, I don't want to get ahead to some of the other questions we'll, we'll talk about later, but but definitely did find that a little bit off-putting. Yeah, and to your point, Short, as well, it's almost like we have Peterson and Schwartzman sort of disappearing at times from a story that I thought was ostensibly about them or driven by them. Yeah, so if you read the acknowledgments, they actually explicitly say they were originally writing a book that was just about the history of private equity, and one of the editors at their publisher convinced them, well, to make this more interesting, you really should focus in on just you know a couple, maybe, and then they focused on Blackstone and Steve Schwartzman. But you can see kind of the genesis of the book and the history of the book and how it might have tried to evolve but didn't fully evolve from being just the history of private equity to just being about Blackstone and Steve Schwartzman. And I, I would agree with both of you. I mean, I found parts of it very dry. Um, I found parts of it kind of um, difficult to get through because they became kind of like a laundry list of deals. So that's something I found a little bit off-putting. But thinking about the book, I, I think all of us learned a lot from it. What are your key takeaways? Well, for me, I think it really came down to the power of the people right behind these companies, the synergy between Peterson and Schwartzman being absolutely essential. You know, they are the quote unquote odd couple, but it did create something uh, that was quite transformational, you know, for uh, the economy, for markets, et cetera, and for these companies. You know, I also think a takeaway for me was that it seems like these private equity folks will say it's a good year or it's a good cycle when movie, when money is moving very quickly and being made even quicker, right? And I want to have some more notes in this book, like we've mentioned before, about the actual internal workings of the companies, their success, their failure rate, et cetera, right? I, I know and I have a feeling that this structure, and one of my takeaways from this book is that this structure is good, unique, and transformational, but I really wanted Carrie and Morris to sort of prosecute that point with some evidence, right? And not just redundantly list some of these transactions as this, you know, oral or written history 
of alternative investing. And then we've mentioned Stockman earlier and you know making some poor decisions with regards to, for example, the, the Rust Belt companies that we were talking about, right? But I also would have liked a bit more clarity around what does good leadership in this world look like? We started getting there with the Schwartzman and Petersons of the world and the profiles in the book. But really, what does good leadership versus bad leadership look like? What does good judgment versus bad judgment look like? I didn't get that as a takeaway here, and I would have really liked that. Uh, Just in terms of being a business self-help book, we really didn't touch on that in this book. It was more along the lines of those profiles. Uh, So maybe it's me just needing to be hit over the head with what my takeaway should be. Uh, Enjoyed it. But again, uh, key takeaway being it's the power of the people. I think it was interesting to learn about the the structure of Blackstone because it was something I hadn't really you know read up on previously. I guess I, I'd heard about you know BlackRock and its its spin out as having been you know a partnership, but the fact that Schwartzman was able to bring in these like titans of finance and basically just cut a deal with them where we're going to create a new partnership. You're not going to be part of Blackstone. You're not going to get any of the benefits of the business that I've actually built other than the name and a little bit of like back office, whatever sort of capabilities. But you are going to get a very large percentage of the equity in this new business, and you are going to be expected to deliver on that. And that was incredibly successful. So they you know, hit it out of the ballpark you know, time and time again. I think maybe they had one or those that, that didn't succeed as much. But basically, every one of those sort of new ventures, uh, new partnerships were able to be very successful by giving a lot of equity to this, you know, new person who had a different set of skills, knew a different part of the market than what, you know, Schwartzman and Peterson and the current partners did. And so that dynamic of kind of creating a mini conglomerate within the financial services space by bringing in individuals that have a new set of skills and then empowering them to deliver by really just, you know, having a partnership with them. I, th- I thought that was really interesting. And I'm su- I'm surprised that, that more firms didn't kind of echo it given how successful it was. But Maybe you you do need like sort of the the stellar brand that Blackstone already had to even be able to, to to engage in that. I'd say the key takeaway for me was something that David mentioned earlier, which is the difference between a corporate raider and a private equity firm, which actually has management on its side and is coming in to do a deal that might actually be quite beneficial to the existing management structure. So there doesn't necessarily need to be this adversarial relationship between the folks who are doing the buyout and the folks who are being bought out. Um, So that was really enlightening for me. Is there anything else that you want to say about the book? Yeah, we had mentioned this earlier, but I really, the opening of the book, and I mentioned how it seemed like Schwartzman and Peterson had disappeared in their own book, but I really thought it started promising with that profile of that very extravagant Schwartzman party that he had hosted. I believe that was the one with Rod Stewart. You know, and I definitely enjoyed that kind of personal vignette. I wish they went a bit deeper with some of that. It seemed like an episode of Billions at first, and this was going to be, you know, I said the power of the people, but this was going to be a story about that give and take between Schwartzman and Peterson. I think that would have been interesting. But again, it turned more into that timeline, that sort of written history uh, and transactional history of this industry from the 1980s through the 2000s. I really like that idea, Kevin, um, because the contrast between Schwartzman and Peterson and how they worked together well in the 80s, and eventually that relationship seemed to really fray in the 1990s. Digging a lot more into that would have been very interesting because they seem like two people who have pretty different worldviews and also different management styles. And how that, how each of them was effective or how they had a nice symbiosis could have been a very interesting thing for the book to get more into. 
I also think, Kopech, that when you look at this book and you look at the Schwartzmans and Petersons of the world, it's very important. I'm probably inarticulately phrasing this, but that's almost like the role of policy diplomacy versus the financial economic engineering. There's Petersons, there's Schwartzmans in the world. And I think the actions of these people, the views that they have of each other really matter to the public arena. And so if this book had gone a little bit into that, I think it would have been super fascinating to show how the differences and the give and take between these two founders of one of the world's largest private equity firms really relates to the broader discussion about the economy, about markets, and about you know market moving figures. I love that. Okay, thinking about the book as a whole, do you recommend it? And if you do, who should read it? So I think I would recommend it if you are looking for a history of private equity. So I think that is like really what this book is. I thought I I learned a lot about the history and there were a lot of things that I didn't know. So it had a lot of valuable information, but I think we've, we've kind of had the conversation throughout that it was a little bit dry. It did at times become literally almost a list. And so like, think of it as private equity, a history, not the rise and fall and rise again of Steve Schwartzman and Blackstone, because that makes it sound much more like the the book that Kevin was describing than the one that they actually wrote. Yeah. And, and you know, to Short's point too, he basically said that he would only recommend this to folks who want a timeline or this history of private equity. I would say who I would not recommend this book to, and that is people who want a self-help or a self-growth business book, which I know is our mission here at Business Books and Company, right? So I would not recommend this book to our core listenership, those who are really out there to you know, learn skills, learn stories and anecdotes that will elevate their own business game. So I would not recommend that at all to them. But I would say that it is essential reading for those who are in private equity, right? Those who likely know a lot more about this than we do here around the table. And I would also say that Carrie and Morris, they do a good job because they don't assume their reader knows the ins and outs of the private equity game, right? They helpfully explain some of these headier concepts throughout their book. And that made it very educational. It made it very interesting. But again, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone outside of private equity. And I certainly wouldn't recommend it for folks who are looking to actually change their own business behaviors, change their own mindset and skill set for the benefit of their current job and their current organization. But it didn't stop it from being enjoyable at times and interesting at times. So I'm grateful that we ended up reading it. But again, wouldn't recommend it to folks outside of private equity. Yeah, and I agree with that. I mean, the book has its interesting points, but most of it is rather dry. For most people, it is not going to help you with your career. So you should really only read it if you are very interested in private equity. You don't need to even be specifically that interested in Blackstone or Schwartzman, like David mentioned. You just need to be interested in private equity, then it's a great book for you. But for most people, probably not going to help you that much with your career. And most people would probably find it somewhat dry. Next month, we're going to be reading The Founders, the story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley by Jimmy Sony. This is a book about the early days of PayPal, and it really gets into the personalities of the founders, people like Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman, Max Levchin, Peter Thiel. So I'm really excited about it. I think it's a good follow-up to the book we did about the early days of SpaceX and Elon Musk earlier in the season. That was awesome. Anything that you want to plug and how can listeners get in touch with you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at David G. Short. And you can find me on Twitter at Hudax Basement, H-U-D-A-K-S Basement. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast player of choice. 
and we'll see you next month.